I'd like for you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and I'll be reading verses 24 through 27. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. Do you, not, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. And everyone who com competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable wreath. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly, after I have preached to others, I, my, I myself should be disqualified. In 1984, as they were qualifying for the Olympic Games, they ran the qualification um, for, the, for the decathlon. And um, three men would be chosen to represent the United States in the Summer Games, who qualified as the top three decathletes. And the Los Angeles Times in 1984 had a magnificent uh, column about the qualification round. It went like this. It was nearly 9 o'clock last evening, Friday evening. A damp coolness enveloped the virtually deserted Los Angeles Coliseum. A few people huddled there, mostly family and friends of the athletes. In the press box, a smattering of weary reporters hunkered down over their notepad to watch the final event of the decathlon competition. As in many of the decathlons, the competition would be decided by this final event, the 1,500-meter run. Walking onto the field were 13 bone-tired men who had completed nine grueling events in just 18 hours. As they trudged slowly to the starting line, one of them, Orville Peterson from Vero Beach, Florida, lagged behind. At nine events, he was tied for 13th place. With a superb performance in the 1500 meter, he could possibly edge his way onto the three-man decathlon team. Yet something was wrong. As his fellow athletes stretched and limbered up, Peterson stood off to one side, unmoving, staring up, at the Colosseum's bright lights. Finally, the starter called the 13 athletes to the starting line. Peterson stripped off his warm-up uniform, revealing a massive bandage protecting a badly torn hamstring muscle. The bandage wrapped tightly around his left thigh. Nonetheless, he took his mark with the other 12. When the gun sounded, the field took off at a fast pace. Peterson, head down, limped noticeably, limping noticeably, began a slow, painful trot around the Colosseum. At the 300-meter mark, he was almost 100 meters behind already. 
The gap grew with each stride around the track. But Peterson, with his head still down, slowly limped along. Then the field caught up with him, and one by one the field lapped him. He took no notice. His limp worsened with each stride, but he doggedly stayed on the track. Finally, the first finisher, John Crist, crossed the finish line with a time of 4 minutes and 28 seconds, giving him a total of 596 points and made him the winner of the decathlon competition and a member of the Olympic team. The second runner finished at 429.38, and the third place finisher was seconds later. Finally, Gary Kinder, in 12th place, finished his 1500 meter run in 501. Peterson still had two laps to go. As Christ and the others celebrated, Peterson limped around the track. When he came across the line to begin his final lap, a strange silence descended on the Colosseum. At once, the spectators and the reporters realized they were watching something very, very special. Applause broke out in every corner of the Colosseum. Peterson's fellow decathletes shouted encouragement as he limped around the track. When Peterson entered the home stretch of the final, for the final time, the decathlon announcer, Frank Sarnowski, college dean from Maryland, caught the magic of the moment. With Peterson limping toward the finish line, Sarnowski's voice, edged with emotion, filled the Colosseum with lines from an ancient Greek saying, Ask not for victory, ask only for courage. In your pursuit, you bring honor to yourself, but more importantly, you bring honor to us all. More than four minutes behind the 12th place finisher, Peterson staggered across the line into the arms of his fellow decathletes. It would have been difficult to find a dry eye anywhere in the Colosseum. He received no points for his time of 9.45.8. He dropped into 32nd place in the final standing. Yet for 10 stirring moments, Orville Peterson was a champion. Wow. Would you like to be a champion for 10 stirring moments? Better yet, would you like to be a champion for the rest of your life? When the Apostle Paul penned these words, he was thinking of the Corinthian games. Now they had the Greek games, the Olympics, that were held every four years in Athens, but in Corinth they had the Corinthian games every three years. Paul was writing to a church at Corinth familiar with these games. And he knew and they knew that for three years these men literally gave everything they had to the running of these games. And when the games began, the town stopped and everybody came out to watch it. How important were the games? Well, if they were in a war, they literally stopped the war. I guess they said, you were here and we were here. And when we get back from the games, we'll start up with this business uh, of fighting again. And the Apostle Paul sees this uh, as analogous to the Christian life 
And he tells us how to be a champion for a lifetime. Four imperatives. The first is, be a winner. Run to win. He says that everybody runs, but only one wins. Run to win. Be a winner. When I was pastoring in West Texas, in Tulia, Texas, a controversy developed in the, in the community. Some parents from, uh, who had children in the middle school, in the junior high, felt like their children were not getting to play enough in the middle school sports, and so they went to the school board to protest. And their contention was that the purpose of middle school athletics was not really whether you win or lose. It was not winning or losing. That wasn't the issue. The issue was teaching fundamentals and letting every child play, you know, an equal amount so that everybody could participate. And when they finished their um, uh, debate, their, their opinion before the school board, then the coach was allowed to speak. His personal friend of mine still is. He said, now we know that, that you know, kids want to play and we teach fundamentals in practice and we let as many play as often as we can, as much as we can. But he said, now the real issue in athletics is to win. He said, I don't know of any competitive game that is not established to, for the purpose of winning. He said, if the issue, if the real mo, uh, purpose is not to win, then why do we have a scoreboard and why do we have a scorekeeper? Now the Apostle Paul is saying, in essence, the saying is not whether you win or lose, but how you play the game is well and good for Little League football, but for the game of life, for the Christian life, there are only two groups of people. They're winners and they're losers. And the winners are those who belong to the family of God. Now he's not writing this to say that you need to run a good race in life so you can go to heaven. He's talking about winning rewards and receiving blessings and rewards from God. He's talking about running to win as a Christian. For the ultimate race has already been determined and if you're a part of the family of God, you've already won. So the implication is two things. He's saying in essence, since you are a winner, look like one and act like one. He's talking about projecting that, that winning attitude toward life. He's talking about projecting that image of one who is not a victim but a victor. He's talking about acting and looking like one who wins. You ever seen a team that has a winning tradition? When they take the field, you can just sense an aura about that team. And as they stride out somewhat self-confident and, and arrogant sometimes, they just kind of just convey this thought, if you beat us today, you're going to have to have the best game of your life because you're, going to, you're taking on some winners. They just project that winning attitude. Being a winner is being positive and not negative. It's being optimistic and not pessimistic. It's being enthusiastic and not apathetic. How many times have I hear people say, well, what's the difference between me and you Christians? You Christians worry about the same stuff. And I see Christians who are just ripped and riddled with anxiety and fear, just like the rest of us. What Paul is saying is, now that you have, you're a part of the winners, live and look like them. A few years ago, this classified ad uh, appeared in the classified section of a newspaper, a city newspaper. Lost dog. 
brown, scroungy hair, slight case of mange, right ear bitten off in fight, sees out of one eye, walks with a limp, and answers to the name Lucky. <laughs> true, true story. Some of us just not living up to the name. Now the name is the name of a winner. Live up to it, says the Apostle Paul. And the second implication of that is, is that since you are a winner, win. And you can look back on the context, verses 21 and 22, and you'll find in the short space of five sentences, this phrase appear five times, that I might win. And the Apostle Paul, without question, is talking about the purpose of our being here, why we're saved, in order that as winners we might win someone to Him. It's a high moment when you take the hand of someone and place it in the hand of God. Second imperative, to be a champion. Concentrate on the imperishable wreath. Look at this verse. They then do this, this discipline, in order to receive a perishable wreath but we an imperishable wreath. We have to ask ourselves, now watch this. We have to ask ourselves, of all that I own and all the time that I spend and all that I'm involved in, how much of it is perishable and how much of it is imperishable? And the thing that staggers the mind of the apostle is this, that people would give, literally give, three years of their life for a wreath that three days later was withered and dead. And the implication is this, that since our wreath, our crown, is eternal and imperishable, does it not make sense that it ought to require, it ought to evoke from us the same kind of commitment and the same kind of discipline, at least. For we live in a society that's wrapped up in perishables. Got to have more, got to have this, got to get that, got to do this. And most of the things to which we give our lives are perishable things. Now I need to say this to you this morning. It just chills me when I hear people say, well if you give to God, He'll give back to you. Probably just bless you and, and He'll just pour out His blessing upon you if you give to Him. You make a deal with God and He'll bless you. You know what we're doing when we say that? We're focusing on the perishable. Yes, it'll... It'll require sacrifice. Yes, it'll require commitment. The Apostle Paul was saying this. You, you focus, you concentrate on the imperishable. You have in your life the, the commitment to that which cannot be lost. That's what makes a champion. Third imperative. Take dead aim at the finish line. This is what he says. He said, I don't run in such a way as not without aim. He said, I'm not in this marathon just for the running of it. I, I'm running for the finish line. 
Oh, watch this. And he said, I'm not boxing as somebody boxing the air, shadow boxing. You ever seen two little boys get in a fight and one of them kind of gets a good lick and makes the other one mad and he doesn't really know how to fight so he just lowers his head and just comes plowing in there with arms flaying in all directions, never landing a lick. The other little boy just kind of stands on the outside and just gets a good one in every now and then. Finally, the little arm flare, you know, is totally exhausted, hadn't hit a lick. The Apostle Paul saying this, I'm going to set my sights, I'm aiming dead aim at the finish line. Not a bad thing. And so a family got the kids in the car and headed off on the summer vacation. After an hour or two, the initial excitement died away and some little kids in the back seat began to say, you know what they say, are we there yet? And finally, one of the little kids in the back seat, totally exhausted, totally tired of the traveling, said to his father, Dad, when we get where we're going, where will we be? Not a bad question. In fact, Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth the living. Now watch me carefully. You and I need to ask ourselves from time to time, when I get to the end of this race, where will I be? I mean, when the line, the bottom line is drawn and the finished word is said and the last breath is breathed, where will I be? Now, I know you young people, that's light years away for you, but it may be closer than you think. So I arrive at where I'm going. What will I find when I get there? For how we, the goals we decide for our life add to the quality of our living. You remember in the classic Alice, Alice in Wonderland, Alice comes to the cat and says, tell me which way I should go from here, please. And the cat said, well, it makes a lot of difference where you're going. She said, well, I don't really care where I'm going. And the cat said, well, it doesn't really matter which direction you take. And Alice said, oh, but I want to go somewhere. And the cat said, oh, I'm sure you will. I'm sure you will. I'm sure you're going to get somewhere. But where is it you're going to get? And so Henry Thoreau was sitting by Walden Pond. You've read that eccentric philosopher's works, perhaps in high school. And these workmen were building this highline wire across the country from Texas to Maine and, and stringing this big wire. And he watched them for weeks, never said a word. Finally, one day he interrupted one of the workmen and, and asked, what are you fellas doing? He said, oh, we're building a telephone line from Texas to Maine. And Thoreau asked, why? And the, and the workman said, well, so the people in Texas can talk to the people in Maine. And Thoreau said, well, what if the people in Texas don't have anything to say to the people in Maine? Pretty good question. And after they talked a little bit, Thoreau made this profound statement. Now listen to it. He said, we're improving the means to unimproved ends. You don't have to know too much about current history to know that we are improving the means to unimproved ends. And so before this decade is out, 
you'll be able to turn on a television in your living room and the picture literally enters the center of the room and you can walk around the picture and you can touch it. And you can see the picture from four sides. It will be cubic. And with the same technology, you can push a button and you can see two or three networks on the same picture. You can see two or three programs going on at the same time. Improved means to what? To programming that isn't worth watching. And once we find where we're going and once we determine the, the aim of life and the finish line and the bottom line, then we determine how I'm going to get there. And so when young people come to me and say, I feel God calling me to the ministry, what do I do next? I say, make every decision on the basis of that call. When you date a girl, remember that call. When you go to college, remember that call. When you take up take classes in college, do every one of them on a basis of that call. What about it, young fathers? You want your children to grow up in a happy and healthy environment, then you make the decisions that will guarantee that. How much time are you going to spend with them? What are you going to do with the Word of God? What are you going to teach them? What are you going to be like before them? And what about the rest of us who are approaching the, near the end of the race? It's not time to stop and evaluate, examine. What is going to be the end result of the road I've chosen? What a, what a thought. One last imperative, please. Be qualified. Look at this last statement. I buffet my body and make it a slave, lest possibly after I've preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now he's not talking about losing one's salvation. These runners, when they lost, didn't stop being Greek citizens. He's talking about the opportunity of reward lost. And so they would have heralds who would run ahead and they would go into the cities and they would make three announcements. They would announce the time and the place of the games. They would announce the winners and they would announce those who had been disqualified. Did you know, are you listening to me? Did you know that it is possible to become unqualified for God's service? Did you know it's possible to become unusable? And the fear of the apostle is this. His fear was that having preached to other people, telling them what they needed to know, telling them what they needed to do, that he himself would fail to be what he told them to be while he was telling them to be it. And I hear people say all the time, when some pastor messes up, and well, we just need to forgive him, that he without sin casts the first stone, that kind of stuff. I'm here to tell you my humble and accurate opinion is this. There are some things that disqualify as far as usefulness is concerned. Now listen to me carefully. I can think of nothing any more terrifying than to be one of those God puts on His shelf. 
there's a story, and sometimes I said in the early service, sometimes I wonder if these, a lot of these stories I read could have actually happened, but if it, it's a true story whether it happened or not. A, a lady took her little boy to hear Paderewski, the famous pianist, and it was an artistic and sophisticated and, and uh, talented group of people listening to this great pianist, except for the little boy. He was bored to his bones. And he sat there and listened to this pianist and watched people exulting, but at an intermission, he got up out of, he, he, he ran all, he, he got away from his mother, and he went up on the stage, and he, sounds like some kids I've seen, he, not mine of course, he, he got up, he, he got up on the piano bench, and he began to play chopsticks. His mother was aghast, horrified. She started to go rushing up to get him. But before she got there, Paderewski came from the side. And he walked where the little boy was, and he put his hands around where the little boy's hands were playing chopsticks, and he began to play the cards that went with it. You've heard the story. Some of you have heard the story. And Paderewski whispered in a little boy's ear, Don't quit. Don't you quit. We'll make this a concerto. And when he finished the last lap, you couldn't find a dry eye in the Colosseum. And while his fellow decathletes embraced him, the announcer, Mr. Sarnowski, said, Here is a champion. He didn't quit. Let's pray together. Our Father, for ten shining moments, or for ten wonderful years, we'd just like to be a winner. Help us to see what it takes and be willing to commit our life to it. For I ask in Jesus' name, for every one of us here, I ask it in Jesus' name. Now would you look here, there are three invitations. I want to invite you this morning, if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, in the ultimate race you've already been declared a loser. If you come today and open your life up to Jesus Christ, He comes and lives and makes you a new creature. That ultimate race is already determined at that point. Would you give your life to Christ this morning? Would you come to say, I want Jesus into my heart. I want Him to be my Lord and Savior. Would you do it? We'll pray together and that, that'll happen for you. Maybe you want to come this morning and place your life in the fellowship of this church. Our church is experiencing great moments of growth now. and It's a good time for you to join with us. God has put His hand and blessing upon us. Or maybe you want to come today to rededicate yourself to Christ. Pastor, I sense that if I continue this way, the goal that I'm going for is a goal of shame and dishonor. Besides that, God will put me on the shelf. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.